Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Say yes to the bless. In a surprise reversal, Pope Francis says priests may now bless same-sex couples. And though marriage remains a strictly straight affair for the Catholic Church, one Jesuit priest says the significance of this change cannot be overestimated. Pushback. Canada's Supreme Court says a class-action lawsuit alleging an epidemic of assaults by the RCMP in the North can proceed. A lawyer for the Indigenous family at the heart of it tells us they're feeling relieved and vindicated. Not ready for takeoff, he is a travel writer who refuses to fly and he'll tell us just how much turbulence that's caused him. A monumental talent, remembering sculptor Richard Hunt, whose public art installations honour the likes of Martin Luther King, Jesse Owens and Ida B. Wells. A nesty piece of work in Australia, a group of Indigenous rangers capture the rarely heard sound of the rarely seen creature known as the night parrot. And warning, graphics language will reach the loser of this year's crap game contest, who tried to create a video game that was objectively bad, but regrettably ended up making something kind of enjoyable. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that takes it to the next level. Pope Francis is giving the blessing of same-sex couples his blessing. Today, the Vatican declared that priests can perform the ritual for people in same-sex relationships, bucking resistance from conservative Catholic leaders. The move does not alter the Church's definition of marriage, which remains solely between men and women, but it is a reversal of the Vatican's previous stance on such blessings. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest. We reached him in New York. Father, I wonder, is your is your phone... Ringing and ringing today? Or is your calendar booked up with dates for blessings? Uh, not yet. Actually, it's okay. been more media hits uh, so <laughs> far, but uh, I've had lots and lots of uh, emails and texts from very happy LGBTQ Catholics. I bet. So how soon do you think you may be able to, to bless a couple? Well, I could do it today. You know, I'm waiting for people to ask, uh, but I'm sure that there are priests who are being asked to come to homes and, you know, go outside in backyards by a lot of LGBTQ couples who have really, you know, longed for this day for years. Why do you think it's happening now? Because as you say, it's people have been pushing for this for such a long time. Well, a little bit of church history, recent church history is helpful. Uh, Two years ago, the Vatican uh, came out, the same um, department came out with a document when asked by someone, can we do this? Uh, Can priests do this? They said no, because God cannot and does not bless sin. So there was a real strong reaction to that. Pope Francis even distanced himself from that. And then subsequently, a new head of that dicastery or department was named Cardinal Fernandez. And then just a couple weeks ago, uh, Pope Francis signaled an openness to revisiting this question. And then he wrote this, uh, this declaration, you know, so it was a kind of response and also, you know, the Pope uh, opened up the door and mm-hmm. Cardinal Fernandez walked through it. With this this letter, this declaration, as you say, what is the Church saying to you, but, but also LGBTQ plus Catholics? Yeah, great question. The Church is saying to me as a priest, you can do it now, right, with certain limitations, as long as it doesn't seem like a marriage, which I couldn't do yesterday. And what it is saying to same-sex couples is that we value you and we want God to to bless you, you know, as individuals and we hear you. So it's it's a really big step. It's kind of hard to overstate because I think for so long people have thought that the church was just anti uh, same-sex everything. And so it's a, it's a big surprise and a, a nice early Christmas gift for LGBTQ Catholics. <laughs> you know, given the conversations you've had or couples who have come to you and you you couldn't help them at that time in the way that they that they wanted in this way, 
What do you think, you know, this will mean to them? Is there a story that you recall about what this felt like for a particular couple? Well, I've been asked many times to do blessings, and I've said that I can't. They understand, but they're sad, right? It's it's you know, it's like being turned away. Mm-hmm. They get it, but now they, you know, they've told me today that they feel much more welcome and much more excited about it. And it's just, you know, it's also a sign. I mean, the church teaches not only with their declarations and their documents, but it's it's a sign for them of Pope Francis's regard for them uh, and that he's hearing them. It's it's a sign that they're being listened to. So I think it's it's not simply about blessing same-sex couples. It is that the church is listening to LGBTQ people in the pews. The church still, though, as you know, says marriage is between a man and a woman. This is not a marriage ceremony. These are blessings of same-sex couples. So does that still concern you? No, because I think that we have to focus on the positive step forward. I don't think that many LGBTQ Catholics expected that. And marriage, you know, it is a sacrament between a man and a woman, but it's a way of accompanying people who might not be able to fit in those categories in a very, I think, creative and theological and pastoral way. So I think most people today are just focusing on the positive news. And you can see by the response of LGBTQ people, if you go online, mm-hmm. you know, what this means to them. So really the proof is in the pudding. They're, they're very happy about this. There are cardinals who are against this. There are Catholics who, who are not pleased about this, certainly. So how do you think that will play out, that there are people who, who don't want this change and they might voice it well, in, their, in their churches? Well, they already have. And I think we have to look at places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe where, you know, you, you can't even mention the term LGBT. Uh, I was at the Synod in October, and there was a lot of pushback. And so, you know, we have to invite these people to see that the church does develop and grow and change, uh, and that we have to listen to the experience of people on the ground. So, you know, these are not categories and stereotypes and and whatnot. These are individuals. Is the, the language and the declaration specific enough, or do you think that it leaves it open to interpretation for, for some you know, as couples come to them, for them to, to turn them away? Oh, no. I mean, it, it's pretty specific mm-hmm. in its theology, and it's pretty specific in laying out guidelines. I suppose a priest could refuse, but the priest couldn't refuse based on any church teaching. The priest would only refuse, you know, I guess based on his, you know, prejudice or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're kind of a, a priest that is not welcoming or a priest that might not be as open, I doubt that many people are going to go to you anyway and ask for same-sex blessings. I mentioned the cardinals. Do you expect them to to continue to push back on this? How do you, how do you see them responding in the months ahead? Well, it depends on the, the cardinal, uh, of course, you know, Canada, U.S. The U.S. Bishops' Conference came out with a pretty muted statement today. Uh, but some cardinals, I think, would be very open to this. And some cardinals and bishops and archbishops themselves might start to do those blessings. I mean, they're allowed to now. I think that's what's such a sea change. You could have a cardinal archbishop of a of a large archdiocese decide to do it, right, in his backyard or in someone's house. That That's a big change. And do it publicly and do it in his collar. And I think when, once we start seeing that, it's going to really influence people once they start seeing pictures of that. You've done blessings of other things before, rings, for example. Is that right? You were trying to help people in ways that you could. Sure. You know, the irony is, as a Catholic priest, you can bless all sorts of things. You can bless dogs, you can bless sheds, you can bless schools, you can bless factories. But up until now, you couldn't bless same-sex couples, which really struck people as, as really unjust. And now you can. So it's, it's really wonderful to be able to do it publicly and not have to you know, worry about skulking around in the shadows. Father Martin, I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest. He's in New York. And you can find that interview on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH.
Flying is usually central to the job of travel writer, but not for Carlton Reed. He is a travel writer who decided three years ago that he would never get on an airplane again. And he says he's perfectly happy being grounded, except for one thing. We reached Carlton Reed in Newcastle upon Tyne, England. Carlton, what what was the moment when you said, okay, enough is enough. Uh, I'm not flying anymore. I guess it wasn't a moment. Mm-hmm. It was a period. And I guess this is the same for many people. And that was the pandemic. So it was something that forced you to think about what you were doing with your life. And, and, and for that, me, that included what I was doing for my, my world of work and how I would yeah. get to that world of work. A lot of people, their reaction after the pandemic restrictions lifted was, get me out of here. I want to take all the trips. You felt differently. Well, and yes and no. No, in that I could still do loads of trips, mm-hmm. but I just wouldn't be flying for those trips. So I, I'm incredibly privileged, incredibly lucky that I'm a travel writer and I get these trips totally expenses free. So these are these are incredibly generous providers yeah. who are normally flying, but I can also take trains. And, you know, Europe, we've got a fantastic train system, so I can take trains. And I just flipped to those methods. And so when PR companies would say, look, we'd like to take you to here, my first point to them is, great, but I'm not taking a cheap flight. I'm going to take a train there. Probably 75% of PR companies drop off at that point. Mm. But now an increasing number are now saying, yes, okay, we'll, we'll do the train. Or some might even say, no, we are only doing this by train. So they've, they've totally bought into it. You've seen a shift then? In the last two years, so when I first started doing this, it was me being a bit of a pest, <laughs> saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Take me you know, or, or leave me. And uh, mainly it would be leave me. And now it's, it's very different. I would, I would say the, the stance I've taken is no longer uh, as weird as it was two years ago. Bottom line, though, you're still able to, to make a living. You haven't lost, uh, you know, uh, a crazy amount of work because of this. If anything, uh, to, to be totally truthful, I've probably, uh, in my line of work, made more money because I'm now specializing in a, what's in effect a growth area. Ultimately, this was an environmental decision for you. Yes. What is off limits? What, where have you not been able to go? Where I'd like to go, and I haven't yet uh, go, and, and, and I will get offered to go to these places, is, is Australia or New Zealand. So that just becomes incredibly time-consuming. I haven't really researched it 100% yet, but just you know, scratching the surface, that's like three weeks. In effect, I've got to cross the Atlantic, I've got to get yeah. to your part of the world first, then go all the way across America by train, and then hope to get a cargo ship uh, San Francisco. Is it worth it? I would love to go to that part of the world. I have got a daughter who is potentially going to be working there as a doctor very soon. So my wife is already eyeing up the fact, <laughs> oh, we're going to be going to Australia. And I've had to say, well, great, but I'm not flying with you. I will set off you know, a month before you and I'll meet you there. Well, I'm glad you brought up your wife because I'm wondering how your family reacts to, to your choices. You're making it work for you, but what about mm-hmm. all the holidays they want to take? Yeah, totally. You know, they would consider me to be a hypocrite because I have done all of this incredible travel for the, in the, the rest of my you know, previous part of my life. And I'm now saying to them, stop flying. And they're saying, well, hang on, you've done yours. Now we want to do ours. And it, mm-hmm. that's the same argument. That's a, that's, a, that's a micro argument. But the same argument is, is macro. You know, that's what many people say, that they want to carry on because, you know, they haven't done their traveling yet. And I absolutely get that. I un- totally understand that. And that's why it's, a, it's an argument I can't actually win from a moral point of view. <laughs> I can win from a scientific point of view, but not from a moral point of view. So they're traveling separately over these holidays? My kids, my millennial kids, they do travel an awful lot. They probably travel more than most millennial adults uh, because they've all got the travel bug from me. Uh, They do the normal thing, which is fly places. It it is a unique and, as you've acknowledged, a very privileged 
position you're in. One, your trips are all expenses paid. Two, you have the luxury of being able to say, okay, I'll take three weeks off just to get to Australia and then you'll you'll spend your time there. And for a lot of people, yeah. you know, travel is that escape in more ways than one that, that they're desperate for. So if they take a flight or two a year, uh, you know, it's, I, I, it's life-changing for them. Yeah. And it, it, it's something I really cannot argue against. And I understand at the end of the day, the science says this, but the person in the street is still flying. And it, it, it's narrowing those two things that's going to have to happen, whether we like it or not. Um, so this choice is a choice I'm now making. But this is probably a choice that's going to be made for people within 10 to 20 years. Even if they don't uh, execute it in the exact same way that you are, what do you hope people do do differently in the near future before it's forced on them, as you say? I, I'm doing the hair shirt way of doing it. You know, you don't have to do it this way. Just reduce it a bit. So if you normally take five flights a year, take three flights a year. So just gradually reduce it and, until everybody is doing much, much less traveling by the means that it's in effect crashing the planet. You can't expect everybody to stop overnight like I've done. It, it, it's totally weird and I'm privileged and I can do it, yeah. actually make that fit for me. But if you can reduce... That's got to be better than doing nothing or even maybe, you know, for the hell of it, flying just because you want to be a, a contrarian. Carlton, thank you. No worries. Safe travels. Thank you. Carlton Reed is a travel writer and podcaster. He's in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, England. Last year, the sculptor Richard Hunt was asked if he ever took a day off. His answer was, not if I don't have to. Mr. Hunt died on Saturday at the age of 88, after a seven-decade career that included very few days off and some remarkable achievements. He was the first black sculptor ever to have a solo retrospective of his work at the Museum of Modern Art while he was still in his 30s. He went on to create more than 160 works of public art across America, massive sculptures of steel and bronze, often honoring civil rights icons. John Ott is his biographer and the vice chair of the Richard Hunt Legacy Foundation. We reached him in San Francisco. John, how would you describe what it is like to stand in front of a Richard Hunt sculpture? Viewing Richard's art is almost always uplifting. And that comes from both seeing the forms as undulate in patterns that are very organic and have been abstracted from organic forms like plants and animals. Very uplifting, many times taking the shapes of wings, um, images of flight, whether it be plane wings from an industrial perspective or the wings of a bird or the wings of an angel ascension and lift and giving metal life and the sense of movement is core to Richard's work over 70 years. And freedom. Freedom, certainly. He held freedom at the highest regard of both what he wanted to convey through his art, but also how important it was to him to have a freedom in his artistic practice, as well as of course, the very important resonances of the word and the concept of freedom as it relates to the African-American experience, um, both in regards to freedom from segregation, freedom from slavery, uh, and certainly freedom to live the life that he wanted to live as the child of a couple that had moved to Chicago from the Great Migration. He'd spoken about being at Emmett Till's funeral when he was just a teenager in Chicago and feeling like that could have been me, that could have happened to me. What did he tell you about how that experience shaped his life and his work? Well, I think that experience was visceral for the entire African-American community, but especially Richard. The house that Richard Hunt was born in in Chicago was two blocks away from Emmett Till's childhood home. And so that 
feeling of somebody from the neighborhood that had traveled south and been lynched. You know, Richard was traveling south uh, to Georgia to see his own family and relayed to me the, the, the sense of that could have been him because of the fact that he would go to the corner store and he would do the same types of things that Emmett was doing on the day that he was, that he was lynched. Richard Hunt has been entrusted to create works to honor legendary figures, uh, Jesse Owens, Ida B. Wells, Martin Luther King Jr. Why did so many people turn to him when they wanted to honor people like that? Well, there are many unique things about Richard Hunt, the chief among them, how incredibly um, popular he became in the fine art world at such a young age. Uh, when he was a student at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, a piece of his was acquired by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And that gave him a, a notoriety and a fame um, that was trumpeted throughout the African-American community as well as the art community. Um, publications like Ebony and Jet did articles on Richard. And I think from that point in his life going forward, he was seen as someone who uh, represented achievement in the fine arts, um, but also speaking through uh, the African-American experience, but in, in a way that was accessible to all. Many of his works are, are highly abstracted. He um, often does deep, deep research into some of these icons of American history as well as African-American history, but expresses those in a way that are very uh, open and accessible to everyone in an aesthetic language that I think has a, a, a lot of appeal. And he, he didn't only make art about the civil rights movement and its, and its leaders. He participated on the front lines as well. Can you, can you share a little bit about that chapter? Yes, he certainly did. He was the first in, in many ways, um, so many African-American firsts that could be mentioned here. Ch chief among them is how he went to the Woolworths lunch counter in 1960. He uh, went into the Woolworths and was the first African-American to be served. That happened in San Antonio, Texas. And that action of going in and being the first African-American to be served at the San Antonio Woolworths at the Alamo Plaza really uh, represented the first peaceful um, lunch counter integration in the South. One of his, his last works will be for former U.S. President Barack Obama and his presidential center in, in, in Chicago. He had visited him recently, Mr. Obama had. Can you tell us a bit about their connection and their friendship? Certainly. President Obama has been a, a fan of, of Richard's for quite some time, and he and Michelle Obama, both collectors of his work, and have paid homage to, to Richard in, in numerous ways, um, with Michelle visiting the studio or, or President Obama doing the same. And that was the first artist that Michelle and Barack went to to commission the piece, Bookbird, um, the very first piece commissioned for the Obama Presidential Center. It represents Richard very well in the sense that he truly believed freedom came from education and the ability to, to really take flight through knowledge. We've talked so much about his history and his work. You've spent so much time with Richard Hunt. I wonder what all of this, recounting all of this today, I'm sure you've, you've spoken to a lot of people, has been like for you. What was he like to you as a human being? Very special and remarkable in every way. He genuinely was one of the most humble and simultaneously intellectual and talented people you could ever meet. But so remarkable, his humility while he was doing so many things that were very historically important. And I think he knew the importance of those, but that never weighed too heavily on him. He was always um, interested in creating art and the practice of creation and knew that that's what he was here for. And that is what fulfilled him. John, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. John Ott is the biographer of the late sculptor Richard Hunt and the vice chair of the Richard Hunt Legacy Foundation. We reached him in San Francisco. We all know what day parrots sound like. Ah! 
(sighs) Whatever, you know, standard Parrot stuff. I mean, look, day parrots are, are, are great, but they're so conspicuous and they're so forthcoming. Unlike a bird that has been described as extremely secretive and mysterious. Yeah, I'm talking about the night parrot. Now, night parrots have got it going on. Night parrots are where it's at, even if it's hard to know where that at is at. Night parrots are native to Australia. They live on the ground in clumps of porcupine grass. They're furtive and stealthy, and they're nocturnal, which is why they're not called mid to late afternoon parrots, all of which explains why they were elusive even before they were declared endangered. And when I say elusive, I mean no one sees them for decades at a time. But listen, the night parrot doesn't live in our 9-to-5 world. It's not punching the clock for the man. You want to find it? You're going to have to go to it. Then you're going to have to set up recording equipment and record for a full month, which is what a group of indigenous rangers did in Australia's Gibson Desert, and how they recorded the night parrot's distinctive call. It is an incredible and incredibly rare discovery, and now the rangers can protect the birds' habitats better, while the night parrots do whatever it is they do. You want to know what they do? You can't know. You think you can just teach them swear words and convince them it's night by covering their cage? (laughs) No way, man. They're not your eager-to-please sheeple day parrots. No way. They are the night parrots. It's been six years since Joe David Nasagalawak says he was assaulted and verbally abused by RCMP officers in Tuktoyaktuk in the Northwest Territories. He was just 15 years old at the time. Now he's the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit that's been given the go-ahead by Canada's Supreme Court. The federal government had asked to appeal the class action. The Supreme Court said no. And that could mean up to $600 million in compensation for more than 1,000 Indigenous residents of the three territories who say they have stories all too similar to Joe David's. Stephen Cooper is one of the lawyers representing the plaintiffs. We reached him in Sherwood Park, Alberta. Stephen, have you, have you spoken to your clients yet? What are they saying to you about this ruling from the Supreme Court? We have uh, incredible relief is the phrase that they used. Mm-hmm. Uh, they feel vindicated. Um, you know, J.D. and his family have been a, a bit nervous about this action because, you know, they are up against, by, by any measure, the, the National Police Force. And uh, when J.D. was up against the National Police Force and its local incarnation in Tuktoyaktuk, Northwest Territories, uh, he was harassed, bullied, and arrested. So uh, an early bit of vindication for, for him, his friends, and his family, certainly. But there's still a long legal fight ahead. Um, before we talk about the intricacies of, of what you'll be working on, can we go back to that, that day in November 2017? Uh, we can, um, and unfortunately we must, not only because of what happened there, but because of what it represents uh, in the territories and ultimately nationwide. I mean, J.D. and his uh, his teenage friends, he was 15 years old at the time, were doing what teenagers do, uh, particularly in small towns, and wandering around. They were the subject of harassment and bullying by, uh, allegedly, by uh, members of the local RCMP detachment and were arrested and ultimately released without charges. And that harassment was alleged to have included the use of a taser. We've requested an updated statement from the RCMP, but in the past, they've they've denied that a taser was used at all. What is the latest Joe David, or JD as you've called him, and his family have heard from the RCMP? 
Not a thing. Uh, you know, I, and, and the excuse generally heard is that there's pending litigation, although JD is not the client per se, mm-hmm. he's the representative plaintiff, and um, all, all lips are sealed at this point. And you have about a thousand names on the class action uh, across the three territories. You're inviting other plaintiffs to come forward as well. So just can you give us a sense, Stephen, of, of the kinds of stories you're hearing from others? What we find is that the RCMP, in, in instances, for example, to cover their own behavior, will charge an individual who has been detained um, for some sort of a resist arrest or assault peace officer. And actually, the aggressor and the abuser is often the police officer themselves. Uh, we, we saw a video, for example, from, um, I believe it was Kimmerut, uh, the mm-hmm. south end of Baffin Island, where um, a young, very intoxicated individual uh, appears to have his, uh, his head or his body slammed by uh, the open door of a moving RCMP mm-hmm. officer's vehicle. Um, there's allegations of sexual abuse. Um, there's allegations of uh, strip searches, um, all of which are horrific in and of, their, of themselves. But the bottom line is the allegations all along is that there are uh, derogatory comments made, uh, derogatory terms used. And there's the whole internal culture of the RCMP about which we are learning more. And, and you know, there's other cases involving um, allegations even of internal discrimination and internal abuse of um, Indigenous and other uh, minority members of the RCMP. So we're looking at the whole system mm-hmm. as reflected by individual circumstances. As you know, when the federal government appealed this class action certification, it was arguing that this was all to do with, quote, a series of highly individual freestanding assault <laughs> and battery allegations, end quote. Uh, and I can hear from her, your reaction already, how, how you feel about that. They're saying it shouldn't be a class action proceeding, but it sounds like what you're suggesting is the cases may be different, but there's a systemic issue. Well, exactly. And frankly, I think that uh, His Majesty's government probably just needs to get a, a stamp with that uh, defense on it, because we hear that all the time. What we're saying is that this is not about individual officers, it's not about even individual members of the class or representative plaintiffs, but rather it's about a system that allows this sort of bad behavior to continue. And despite Prime Minister of Canada, despite various commissioners and other high officials in the RCMP acknowledging the problem and committing to making it go away or lessen it, it hasn't happened. What would better oversight and support of RCMP detachments by the federal government, what would that look like in your view? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a litigator representing a group of people who have been wronged. I'm not an expert, uh, although we've engaged and will continue to engage experts that hopefully will provide some of those answers. But first, we need full disclosure from the RCMP. One of the, 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 the strengths of a class action is we're entitled to see documents and records and reports that we might not otherwise get access to, because right now it's a very voluntary system. I mean, to a certain extent, you can apply for for material under access legislation, um, provincially and federally, but it's always subject to a lot of discretion, we say, in favor of the institution, which is under attack, and that's the problem. Here, the individual who has been the subject of some form of discrimination and abuse or otherwise is able to rely on the collective strength of the class and the council, the consortium, I mean, we will be standing between the RCMP and His Majesty's government and the individuals, and we expect to get the information that might otherwise never have seen the light of day. I was reading, uh, you know, about uh, Joe David's father's concerns about how he was doing, you know, when, when he was 15 and concerns about school because RCMP would come to give presentations at the school. How is he doing now? Uh, now, uh, probably uh, 10 times better than he was a few weeks ago when we were getting, you know, uh, understandably very common communication from from uh, the client and his family. Um, you know, he's, again, vindication is incredibly, an incredibly powerful force, particularly in the Indigenous community. I mean, I, I've been doing this for over 30 years and uh, sitting in with residential school survivors when the, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time issued his apology. These are powerful moments. First, there has to be acknowledgement. Then there has to be the sort of validation that we're starting to see already. And then ultimately, the reconciliation, apologies, compensation, um, all of that is empowering. It doesn't change the past, but it can certainly help change the future. Stephen, thank you. My pleasure.
Stephen Cooper is part of the legal team representing plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit against the RCMP in Canada's north. We reached him in Sherwood Park, Alberta. As Neil mentioned, we reached out to the RCMP to request a comment on JD's case and the class action, but we did not hear back before airtime. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. If you play video games, you know the feeling. You're exploring the first few levels of a new title when it occurs to you, this game is crap. Well, if you think you've played some crap video games, let me introduce you to Jamie Bradbury, a man who has immersed himself in games so crap they sometimes find new sub-levels of crapness. So if you have great ambition, but maybe your skill level as a programmer doesn't meet that ambition, then that could make something crap. Um, I think if you've got a certain sense of humor um, and uh, you want to sort of build a game around that, then that that could be quite crap. Um, Yeah, there's no hard and fast criteria, really. So anything... You just know crap when you see it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you just know crap when you see it. That's that's exactly, exactly that. Jamie Bradbury speaking with Neil back in July about adjudicating this year's crap game contest in which competitors create objectively crap games for an objectively crap gaming system, the 8-bit ZX Spectrum. Fail to design a crap game, which is to say accidentally create something that's actually enjoyable, and you lose. And by losing, you will find yourself forced to adjudicate the following year's contest. That fate has now befallen Ed Toovey, who was just declared this year's crap game contest winner, which is to say loser. We reached Mr. Tuvey and Barton on Sea, England. Ed, do I wish you congratulations or condolences? De- definitely <laughs> condolences. Yeah, how are you handling this this difficult time? <laughs> I'm trying trying to trying to stay away from the drink at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish you luck in that endeavor as well. Jamie Bradbury called your game quote very well made and amusing end quote. So that that must hurt. <laughs> it, it, it does. It does when you're really going for totally the opposite effect. It's a, it's a bad result. Well, what were you doing to try to make a, a bad game? I mean, clearly that was your goal, but you made a good one, it sounds like. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I started to care about the game too much. Mm. Um, so, so Jamie wrote a review pointing out the spelling mistakes and everything else in the game. Um, at that point, I should just turn around and say, well, it's a crap game. What do you expect, Jamie? <laughs> um, but I didn't. I, I kept improving and, and polishing it, which uh, is totally the wrong thing to do. You couldn't help yourself. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> just describe your game for our listeners. Um, so the the game is a is a text um, adventure. So the you, you get presented with a sort of text description of where you are. Um, and you have to type in various commands to move to different areas, pick up objects, do things with objects. It's called License to Mow, uh, we should say. It's called License to Mow. So um, for some reason, I tried to squeeze all of the James Bond movie <laughs> titles into the game, but yeah. cha- changing one of the words to be something to do with mowers. So the the plot line sort of goes that the, the evil Dr. Moe has returned from Russia with mowers. <laughs> um, and he, he has a plan to flood the market with cheap mowers. Um, and then you have to basically stop him. And for people who I remember this from my last conversation with with Jamie, that there's a link, a lawnmower link to the origins of this competition. Is there not? Yes. Yeah, so back in the 80s, um, there was a magazine called Your Sinclair for um, users of the, the, the Sinclair Spectrum computers. Uh, and as an April Fool, they 
did a review of a game called the Advanced Lawnmower Simulator, which they gave a fantastic review to, um, which was a, a crap game where all he could do was press the letter M to move a little man across the screen to, to mow his lawn. And is, did you think that by weaving in that legacy into your game, that that would give you an edge? I think I just got carried away with it. So on the um, on the online forum, yeah. um, the Spectrum Computing, somebody on there said, what a great idea it would be to have a, a MOA-based adventure game. Yeah. And I, I thought, well, I can throw that together overnight and send that off to Jamie. Why do you think? Why do you think there's so much nostalgia for the Spectrum? Um, I, I think it's because com- computers were such an exciting thing in those those days. Um, you didn't have a computer in your home generally, um, and so suddenly there was a computer release which families could afford, just about. Um, and so we suddenly had this thing where you could play games, write your own games, write your own programs on. And most of us probably are going back to our, 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 the excitement of our childhood. Yeah, we we all could use a little bit of that, uh, especially these days. It, it, did that did that fuel your desire to to be part of this this year? Is it is it sort of a um, a connection to childhood, like you said, but also a a break from the madness of the world? It it is. It's, it's a relaxing place to to go to. Um, where you can you can just focus on on something creative and, and not have to worry quite about what's going on around us at the moment. There were lots of other entries, of course. Is there one or two? Uh, are there one or two that that you thought would would come out and lose? <laughs> um, I was really hoping that there was one called Cocaine Bear, which was was based on <laughs> the the movie. Yeah, um, which was a, a very nicely put together little arcade game. Um, that I really thought was was polished enough to 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 lose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you submitted another game too, though, right? I I, I had submitted another game before this one mm. um, to to poor Jamie, which again was a text adventure, um, and, and hopefully truly crap. You, you 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 could basically just move around the game, and it gave you a random description of where you were, which didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and there was no real way of winning. You just went around in circles. Mm. I, I, I should have stopped at that point. <laughs> but now <laughs> you have the honor or dishonor, however you feel about it, to judge <laughs> next year's competition. Uh, we heard, as our listeners did, Jamie's criteria off the top. So what are you going to be looking for? Um, I think my criteria was, uh, as a child, I would go to the, the local news agents to, to buy games. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a newspaper round and earn enough money to buy a game at the weekend. And so I'd, I would go and carefully choose which one based on the, the illustrations on the cover and the, the blurb on the back. Um, and quite often you'd get home and find it was the most dire piece of rubbish <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, so, so my criteria is, is a game really that promises a lot, but you never want to play again once you've tried it once. That's pretty good. That's pretty succinct. How much did those <laughs> games cost? Did you have a favorite? Um, it, it, in those days, it was it was probably about one pound ninety nine, I think. Oh wow! And uh, there, there were there were other higher quality ones at a higher price, but they were generally out of my my range in those days. Um, but I, I was always into text adventures; they they were my thing as a child. Uh, Ed, uh, uh, good luck with the judging, and sorry again for, <laughs> yes. for this difficult time. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> I shall uh, see how I feel this time next year when it's all over. <laughs> we'll see. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Take care. Bye then. Ed Tuvey is the winner of this year's crap game contest, which is to say the loser because he accidentally created its least crap game. We reached him in Barton on Sea England. And speaking of crap. That, of course, is the sound of Trombone Champ, the first and as yet only trombone-based rhythm music game. Last year, it went unexpectedly viral. It was designed by Dan Vaquito, and in September 2022, he talked to Neil about taking life by the horns. I kind of 
don't remember exactly where the idea came from, but I remember having just this um, idea for basically the game as it exists right now, just the funny trombone game. Except when I first imagined it, I was imagining it as like a physical arcade cabinet type experience Mm -hmm. with a big like rubber floppy trombone that would kind of like resist you as you're trying to use it. I had this mental picture of, you know, people fighting with this big trombone, just trying to play the music and it's sounding terrible. And for a while, it was just this kind of funny idea that I had no interest in pursuing because the game stuff is just nights and weekends. It's a hobby thing. And um, we don't have the time, money, intellect to like put together an actual hardware device, you know, like the trombone controller. But then later on, I realized, uh, oh, I wonder if I could use the mouse. I could like make a prototype using the mouse. And so then I made a little prototype, a really simple, basic prototype using the mouse with terrible graphics. And sure enough, I think it worked just as, just as I imagined. It was funny. It got kind of like shared around a little bit. People laughed at it. So I decided, hey, this would be a good little game I could throw together quickly. Then I spent a lot of time on it, way too much time. <laughs> and also, since this was a nights and weekends thing, like a hobby, and I wasn't depending on it for money, I could just keep plugging away at it. You know, there's like no real pressure for me to get it out at a certain date. So I just kept making it stupider and stupider and adding <laughs> more dumb ideas. Any dumb idea, any idea that made me laugh, I put it in regardless of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. I hear O Canada is part of this <laughs> list of 20 songs. So yep. thank you, I think. Uh, but what are some of the other <laughs> songs? Like, how did you pick? I kind of had no budget. So a lot of it was really simple. It's just like, what's free? <laughs> what's what's public domain? So there's a bunch of anthems, a bunch of like, you know, like the really famous classical pieces like Aina Kleine Nachmusik and um, there's some marches. And then because this is a rhythm game, kind of like Dance Dance Revolution, I did want a handful of like electronic tracks mm-hmm. or stuff in different genres um, but basically whatever was <laughs> the first the first criteria was whatever it was public domain or royalty free well let's play a little bit more music go for it <laughs> It's giving me elegance, um, <laughs> but it's not just what we're hearing. Uh, I love that you one. know, can you describe what the the player would be seeing in that moment on the screen? Yeah, so on the left hand side of the screen, they'd see like this little dot, and they can move it by moving the mouse forward and back. On the right hand side of the screen, they see a big like character who kind of looks like a muppet holding a trombone. And then you know, when as the music is playing, all of these notes are kind of flying at you at breakneck speed, and you're trying to match them, but it's nearly impossible, which is why it sounded like it did in that clip. Trombone champ creator Dan Vaquito speaking with Neil in September 2022. Most of the time when you hear a song years or decades after it was released, it's because you're listening to a hits of yesterday and today's station or a greatest hits CD. Or an A-track, if your A-track player's still working. But if you hear Paula Toledo's How Long, it's probably because you're listening to a trove of bootlegged Russian DVDs. When you pop them in and launch the title menu, odds are pretty good that you will hear this. Toledo never officially released that song, but online sleuths around the world made it their mission to discover the person who'd recorded it. We tracked Ms. Toledo down in Vancouver to hear how they tracked her down. Paula, I think How Long is uh, quite a fitting title given where the story's gone. (laughs) Yeah, I think the community's also named it How Long Will It Take? Yes, (laughs) to find find you uh, and all the (laughs) other details. When did you realize that there was this community trying to figure out who the artist behind the song is or was. Yeah, I didn't know that this community existed at all. I found out on Friday and just a few days uh, ago. I got a, just a few days ago, exactly. Yeah, I got some emails and at first I thought it was a bit of a joke or I wasn't sure. It was through my website. Um, but then as the night went on, I started getting more and more emails with the same story. And then uh, my DMs and my Instagram got flooded. And then I also um, started getting payments for money uh, to uh, pre-order my upcoming album. So then I started thinking, maybe there was something to this. Well, what were the emails and DMs saying? 
They were saying that my song, How Long, uh, was deemed a lost song, that it was um, somehow placed on bootleg Russian DVDs, like in the menu where it plays in the background. Uh. And it was just a snippet of the song. And somebody threw the internet on an internet forum, I believe they were initially in the Ukraine in 2007, had posted, um, does anybody know who the artist is behind this song? And that kind of just propagated more interest and inquiries. And um, over the last 16 years, I think there have been people from thousands of people from all over the world that were looking for my song. And well, they, they actually said, you know, you might be getting a slew of people contacting you. And then sure enough, I started getting more and more emails, more DMs. And so that's how I found out on Friday night. <laughs> and you were worried that you were saying you weren't sure about the messages. You thought it was a scam. Your son weighed in and helped you sort through everything. Oh, my gosh. My whole family was there. My partner was there with yeah. me when we found out. Um, I, I actually was out when I got all these emails. And I, I came home and I, I said to my son, can you just check this out? Because he's quite uh, – he's very tech savvy. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, it's legit. It's the Reddit links and it's a YouTube link. And so we clicked on them and we – watched this video essay on the search for the song and my jaw just completely <laughs> dropped. I think I was in shock for quite a while and um, my kids were hugging me saying they were so happy for me. It was a really beautiful moment. I was just so awe-inspired by this community. There have been a lot of friends that were made mm -hmm. through this um, forum. It's called the Reddit, How Long Will It Take Community? Um, and searching for the song with this like common purpose and goal. So it's just super, super heartwarming. I'm blown away. And uh, yeah, just the best Christmas present ever, I really. <laughs> I bet. Well, how do you think it even got into that menu for the Russian DVDs? I'm not sure. It's it's just, it, that's the mystery to me. The song was never released. Um, it, was, uh, it was mastered, I believe, in 2005. I licensed it to... Uh, a made-for-TV show and uh, another TV production, which um, I guess aired in North America and across the world. And I don't know, that song somehow found its way into these bootleg DVDs, but uh, it, that's a mystery <laughs> to me. I have no idea how that happened. Well, then, and also how, I mean, there's just thousands and thousands of people on, in this community online, as you said, but how did they eventually track you down? Well, what I've learned is like they're, they're very collaborative and they, they each, from what I understand, have roles and they document every single aspect of their search. I think they had a hard copy of the DVD and found out who was um, making the DVDs and maybe there was an association between like who made the DVDs and mm -hmm. trying to figure out who the DV uh, companies were and tracked them down and then started searching performing rights organizations and they it led them to SOCAN. So they they were sleuthing through like several hundred queries trying to track down the, those uh, those words how long and finally they found me. We've got some potential investigative journalists uh, in it, these yeah, groups. exactly. <laughs> and so can exactly. for our listeners is the, is the Society of Composers, Authors and Music Publishers of Canada. But uh, I'm wondering when you go back and remember as you were writing that song, what did you hope to convey at that time? I think that song was a mix of what I was observing, but also sort of me trying to, you know, I quit my job. I was in, in marketing full time to pursue um, music. So uh, at that time, it was really me reconciling, like, how do I live in integrity of who I know I am and want to be? It's, it's a song about really finding and owning your truth. And now when I listen to it 16 years later, this is what everybody's talking about, you know, and especially for women. And so that's incredible, like that I was experiencing that then and now being older, definitely coming into my own and, and seeing it from that perspective. And the connection you were talking about earlier between, you know, members of, of this community trying to figure out where, you know, who, who wrote the song and, and to connect with you. Of course, every artist wants their art to connect with with people. But this is this is at a very different level and at a time where people are hungry for connection, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, what's really serendipitous is I went back to school and did my master's in applied positive psychology, which is the science behind well-being. And my focus after my master's became how to use music and wonder to socially connect 
people when they're feeling lonely. And so the fact that these people can come together and really, you know, have these really joyful experiences and um, enthusiasm for searching for the song and perseverance, and then experience like all these aspects that are really helping their well-being. I'm just always like blown away that these people are just, they've connected from all corners of the world. So it's just, it's pretty wild. And a whole new set of fans for your next album. Oh, <laughs> well, I think that that would be a wonderful thing. Paula, thank you. Thank you so much, Neil. I really appreciate you taking the time. Paula Toledo is the artist behind How Long. She spoke to us from Vancouver. And throughout 2023, proceeds from the song will be donated to the charity Music Heals. You want to judge Joseph DeRuvo Jr. walk a mile without his shoes, or your shoes. Mr. DeRuvo has not worn shoes for a couple of decades now. But after his conversation with Neil this past March, it's clear that you yearned to better understand his incredible feet, or his incredible feet. Our online story about him ranked among the years most viewed on the AIH webpage. People get skeeved, says man who's been living barefoot for 20 years, came in just before it's been a rough ride for a baby hawk being raised by bald eagles, and just after Burger King must defend its whopper size in court. You can stroll on over to cbc.ca slash AIH anytime for more about the stories you hear on this program, or to hear them again, like, say, 2016's Scientists Research Man Missing 90% of His Brain Who Leads a Normal Life, or 2021's It Was Crazy, Says California Kayaker, Who Was Engulfed in a Whale's Mouth, both of which also made it into our top 10 this year, for reasons that are totally unclear to us, but which we take as a compliment, nonetheless. And now we take our own bold step of bringing you an encore presentation of Neil's conversation with shoe eschewer Joseph DeRuvo Jr. We reached him in Norwalk, Connecticut. How do your feet feel today, Joseph? <laughs> um, they're good. They're good. Yeah. Uh, it's been, uh, it, snowed, uh, it snowed the other day and uh, everything's melting off. And uh, truth of the matter is the, uh, the melt is good because it gets all the... Uh, it gets all the ice melt uh, and salt off the road, and that that usually, that's the worst of it. The uh, well, ice melt and the snow uh, and the salt. So you you go out barefoot even when there's snow and ice on the ground. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. how do you not get frostbite? That you know, I have to be conscious of that. But you know, when I go for my doctor's uh, checkup, uh, he takes the uh, pulse uh, at the wrist, but also at the ankle. And he's always dumbfounded that my uh, pulse at my ankle is stronger than most people's uh, at their wrists. Um, the body adapts. So, so when when the feet are feeling things, you know, your brain goes, "Oh, there's something down there," and uh, it sends blood. Uh, when when you're insulated from that, uh, you know, I think the uh, the brain kind of loses track uh, and uh, it doesn't uh, supply mm -hmm. blood to it, but. When you're walking and your feet are uh, uncovered, the, the brain pays attention to them. Okay. I'm going to talk more about your tips and, and all the other things you have to navigate. Oh, no. no but... I'm not giving tips for anyone. <laughs> this is, this is okay. Just we me. won't say tips, but just how you navigate this, this barefoot life you've been living for decades now. But I want to go back to the beginning because you have a foot problem that a lot of people have right around the world. Bunions. Yeah. Bunions. Oh, yeah. Men, women, everybody, you know, lots of people experience this, but, you know, some get surgery, which can be difficult. Some you just use toe separators or more comfortable shoes. You listen, said no listen, shoes at all. Listen, my feet have always been bad, uh, mm -hmm. extremely flat-footed, uh, and bunions from, from a pretty early age. Uh, it's uh, genetic. It, it's not because of bad shoes or mm -hmm. anything. But the unique situation is um, – I have inoperable bunions in the fact that I'm allergic to metal. I see. So surgery wasn't an option. No. But I think a lot of people would still think, wow, this is this is a pretty big, big move to make. No shoes at all for all of these years. So is it about more? Was it about more than comfort for you yeah, in the well, end? Uh, I'm going to prayerfully try and make this point. Uh, and that is the being barefoot is is a little bit of a distraction from really my my singular 
purpose. And, and my singular purpose is to say for anyone who is struggling with an obstacle, uh, a disability, uh, whatever hurdles someone might come across in their life, that, you know, there might be a way to step back, uh, evaluate it, take a look at it, and come up with a creative enough solution that, you know, allows you to get on with things. And it's not a solution that makes you invisible, that makes the problem invisible. More than likely, the solution is something that kind of brings out whatever that is into the daylight and lets you, you know, say, okay, this is what it is. And I don't have to be embarrassed about it. I don't have to be frightened of it. I can figure out how to use it to kind of give me some some leverage around and get on with the things I need to accomplish or you know, be more who I am. We do live in a world, unfortunately, where differences aren't always accepted. You must confront or be confronted by that sort of thing every day. How do you, how do you deal with those reactions and the limitations that others may put on you? I, I, I deal with it by uh, recognizing that um, I might be a, a lightning rod for this, but at the same time, I feel a responsibility to uh, be um, accepting, to, to be uh, inviting of those questions, to uh, engage in such a way that, that I can possibly take the opportunity to, to you know, uh, have someone look at it a little bit differently. And, and again, not for myself. I mean, I get by you know, I've been living long enough, I get by fine, but so that if they encounter someone else, they can just give them a little bit more grace, a little bit more room for them to maneuver around who they are. I know you said you, your feet have adjusted over these years and that your pulse, that your ankle is really yeah. strong, but how do you make sure that they, they stay clean and healthy? I mean, you could easily step on something. Um, how, do you, how do you make sure everything's copacetic? It's, it's a disciplined movement. I mean, I, it doesn't allow you to be absent-minded when you're walking around. You have to be conscious where you're stepping and where you're placing your foot and, and how you're rolling off your foot. And, you know, I have, I have pretty perfect vision six feet out in front of me. You know, I mean, I'm always scanning where I'm walking. It sounds like there there is um, almost a, a spiritual aspect of this for you, a mindfulness aspect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, yeah. When I don't feel the ground, I just get a little bit edgier than, than I normally am. And that's, that's a little bit edgy. So, so being able to feel the ground really just kind of helps uh, literally ground me. It kind of gives me a calm. Yeah. There is a meditative, there is a prayerful process uh, about it. Uh, and uh, if, you, uh, if anyone takes pleasure in the Old Testament story of God speaking to Moses from the bush, you know, God says, well, this ground is holy, and, and I, I hold to that, and I, I try to push it as far as possible. Well, it sounds like uh, pretty much nothing slows you down, Joseph. I really appreciate <laughs> your time. Okay. Happy to uh, give you the opportunity. From our archives, that was Neil's conversation with Joseph DeRuvo, Jr. from March of this year. We reached Mr. DeRuvo in Norwalk, Connecticut. the time of year when we gather together with friends and loved ones and think of those who aren't able to join us in person. Someone close to our hearts here at As It Happens is our friend, former co-host Jeff Douglas, who is now back in his home province of Nova Scotia hosting the Afternoon Drive Home Show. So it's fitting that as part of our annual holiday readings, we bring you his rendition of The Skater, a poem by the late Canadian writer Charles G.D. Roberts. Here's Jeff. My glad feet shod with glittering steel, I was the god of the winged heel. The hills in the far white sky were lost, the world lay still in the wide white frost, and the woods hung hushed in their long white dream by the ghostly, glimmering, ice-blue stream. Here was a pathway, 
smooth like glass, where I and the wandering wind might pass to the far-off palaces drifted deep where winter's retinue rests in sleep. I followed the lure. I fled like a bird till the startled hollows awoke and heard a spinning whisper, a sibilant twang as the stroke of the steel on the tense ice rang and the wandering wind was left behind as faster, faster I followed my mind till the blood sang high in my eager brain and the joy of my flight was almost pain. Then I stayed the rush of my eager speed and silently went as a drifting seed. Slowly, furtively, till my eyes grew big with the awe of a dim surmise, and the hair of my neck began to creep at hearing the wilderness talk in sleep. Shapes in the fir gloom drifted near. In the deep of my heart, I heard my fear. And I turned and fled like a soul pursued from the white, inviolate solitude. My friend and predecessor here at As It Happens, Jeff Douglas, reading The Skater by Charles G.D. Roberts. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.